everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I... Guys, I gotta tell you, I'm kind of a late adopter when it comes to the music that you're hearing in the background right now. And honestly, I mean, like, the reason for that is 
It's not because I never liked this Hans Zimmer Man of Steel stuff. It's not that I disliked it, okay? That is totally not the case. But for a long time there, it was just really hard for me to envision that music as a companion piece to anything other than Superman Earth 1, right? The JMS series, Superman Earth 1, right? It was just kind of hard for me to picture this music as part of or rather as an uh, as a companion to anything other than that but where things kind of started to shift on that was actually of all things it was batman v superman now don't get me wrong you know man of steel i think is actually a, a pretty post-crisis burn age type of superman already you know but it's just for some reason i don't know why i wasn't really able to connect all of those dots back to the Burn Age Superman, you know? Hans Zimmer's work on Man of Steel, for some reason, it didn't seem to be quite as of a piece at times with the the Burn Age Superman as I might have liked. And like I say, I mean, the real switch with that sort of came when Batman v Superman was released and... What ended up happening was the uh, I, I read as part of an episode that I did with uh, John M. Wilson. I read Dark Knight over Metropolis. I read that, and then I swear to think it was as I was reading. My memory could it, it could be playing tricks on me here, but the way it goes in my mind, it was right as I was reading dar or rereading Dark Knight over Metropolis for that episode I did with John M. Wilson that the film score for Batman v Superman was released online. And I don't know so much about retail stores, but I don't know if retail stores even really matter anymore. If fucking it was released, right? That's what matters. So I heard it. And this idea of pairing Batman and Superman up because of the fact that I was, I, I either was reading or had just read Dark Knight over Metropolis. That was very fresh in my imagination. When I, heard, when I heard the film score for Batman v Superman for the first time. And there was something about it, I don't know, it was like, it, it was it was as if something like scales fell from my eyes. And ever since that time, it's been a lot easier for me to associate the Hans Zimmer Superman music that he's done with specifically the Burn Age Superman, right? And the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about this is to say that usually what I've done to uh, kick off any episode that I do about, or almost any episode I do, about the Burn Age Superman is to use the uh, use music from the, the uh, Ruby Spears uh, animated uh, Superman show from the late 80s, just basically use that music. And the reason for that is because I do think that really is a good fit for all or most of the Burn Age. There's something about that Ruby Spears Superman music. It just seems to work, at least for me, really, really well. And so that's typically what I've done. That's been my modus operandi every time I've used, or again, not every time, but in the great majority of cases when I uh, do anything related to the Burn Age Superman or I read any of those comics or what have you. Not always, but usually I'll lean towards using the Ruby Spears uh, music. But that obviously is not really the case this time. Just in case that wasn't clear. But anyway, in case, speaking of things that may not be uh, clear, just in case it's not clear to anybody listening, 
Yes, I will in fact be talking about an issue of the Burn Age Superman, and not just any issue. No, no. Specifically, this is an issue that I ended up, of all things, actually having to pick up more as a uh, as a back issue. And the reason for that is because when I was collecting comics as a kid, as I've said before, at least on a few occasions now, uh, it basically really is catch as catch can, you know, with your with your comic book collecting. You may not be able to get every single issue of a given title that comes out, you know. It's just, it really does come down to, you know, can you get to the LCS? Or can you get to... Uh, Walden books or just fucking whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever variables that you need to work out. Can you, in fact, work those things out, you know? And at least in the case of today's issue, which is to say The Adventures of Superman, number 481, guys, I just couldn't get the stars to align, you know? And so what I ended up having to do was actually get The Adventures of Superman, number 481, as a back issue. And I have to tell you, at the time that I was trying to get it as a back issue, it was a kind of inopportune moment for a Superman collector because, generally speaking, Superman back issues are some of the cheapest that you can get on the market. You know, there may be cheaper issues out there somewhere, and I just haven't heard about it. But for the most part, I would say that probably Superman, is he's got to be in the, in the top five, top ten for sure. Uh, of cheapest back issues on the market, right? Except that generally, well, doesn't always work in your favor, put it that way. Because at the time that I was trying to get my hands on a back issue of, of Adventures of Superman number 481, guys, it was right in the middle of all that doomsday funeral for a friend, reign of the Superman, just fucking hoopla that went on. And back issues of anything Superman from the 90s up to that point, they were a pretty rare and or pricey commodity, right? So if you could find it, odds are you'd pay what I believed at the time was way too much money for that back issue, right? Now, stuff from the 80s, that tended to mostly be cheaper, right? But that's basically anything. It's like January or cover date, January of 1990, and then going forward. There was a time when, guys, you kind of had to pay a little bit extra for those back issues because, hey, Superman is the hot new title. So says Wizard and all this stuff. So anyway, long story short is I think Superman back issues, especially from the 90s, Superman back issues, if they're not cover price, they should be damned close to it, usually within... 75 to 75 cents to one dollar that's pretty much where they need to be you know and the reason for that is you know these things were so mass printed especially whenever you start getting into the the doomsday and post doomsday eras there were so fucking many copies of superman on the shelves that then as now my attitude was there's no reason for these things to cost shitloads of money. And I defined at that time shitloads of money to be like the five or six bucks that people wanted for even for kind of irrelevant titles like or irrelevant issues for that matter, like Adventures of Superman number 481. I mean, people were charging like five, six, seven bucks for this stuff, you know, just because fucking people would pay it. Right. I don't know why people would pay it, but they would. They would pay it. 
right? And the great equalizer on this, of all things, ended up being this uh, th- this uh, comic book dealer who set up a, a kiosk in the mall, Willowbrook Mall, for anybody interested, which is two of you, I'm sure. But anyway, um, there was this guy who basically, you could do this back in the 90s, he basically set up a kiosk in uh, Willowbrook Mall, and he had a small back issue selection. Now, realistically, what he was there to do was sell new issues, right? That was going to be his bread and butter. But maybe he had a, 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 the way it goes in my mind is he might have had a, basically some back issues that he, he just somehow ended up with and he didn't really care about, didn't really want. And hey, if I can sell these two, so much the better. You know, and this happens sometimes as a comic book collector. I mean, guys, I have comics in my collection. I have no idea where they fucking came from. Right. I mean, I, I know that I went through a phase where I was just randomly buying entire collections off of eBay, you know, and so it's I guess it's possible that some of this stuff could have come from like here's a here's a good example. Right. Somewhere in, in my in, in my long boxes. Right. I've got like brigade number three. Now, guys, I don't know much, but I know this. I never, ever, never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever, never would have bought, never would have paid money for anything brigade. Not back in the 90s and not now as some kind of fucked up nostalgia for the 90s trip that a lot of people are going through right now. Guys, look, if that's you, if you're listening to this and you're going through some kind of nostalgia trip that has taken, is taking, or will take you through Brigade, dude, God bless. I am not criticizing you. I'm just saying that is never going to be me. Never going to be me. But somehow, somehow, I have a copy of Brigade number three, or like number two or number three, it's fucking something like that. I have that comic in my collection. I have no fucking idea where it came from, right? And as I say, it is possible that it came from one of those collections that I just randomly bought off of eBay because, hey, why not? But, you know, a lot of that stuff was relatively targeted. These were supposed to be collect like DC collections or Marvel collections. So just how in the high holy fuck an issue of Brigade could have possibly ended up in there is beyond me. But I, I don't know, but it fucking happened. And so anyway, um, and now, of course, I have no idea where I was going, where I was going with all that. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy in the, the guy in the mall, right? The kiosk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, the way it goes in my mind is this guy, this dude who ran the kiosk in the early 90s in Willowbrook Mall, he basically had a bunch of bullshit in his collection that he just somehow came into. It just like, I don't know, maybe it it, it grew inside of some Petri dish inside of his collection somehow. Like an issue of the Avengers mated with an issue of Spawn. And hey, here comes Adventures of Superman number 481. Because he had it. And he not only had it, but he was selling it for cover price, right? Well, guys, I've been to my LCS and they wanted like, like four, five, six bucks for this thing. And I, and and look, I mean, like I say, my idea of Superman back issues, my sense of them is that they really need to be either cover price or damned 
close to it, right? And none of those really seemed like fair and decent prices. And I was kind of stubborn when I was a kid, right? And then as now, my basic attitude is, look, asshole, time is on my side. Sooner or later, I don't know when, but sooner or later, the day's going to come when I'm going to find this comic for the price that I want to pay. I don't need you to make that happen. All right. Time is on my side. Okay. Because it's like anything, you know, it really does come down to the law of averages and the law of numbers. And those things all say that given a sufficiently long lifetime or even just shit, just a normal lifetime, sooner or later, I'm going to find this issue at the price that I want to pay. And in my imagination, I'd basically set the imaginary cover, not the cover price, the imaginary aftermarket price for which I was willing to pay. I basically worked my way up to two bucks. I'm willing to pay two bucks for this back issue. That's my red line. I'm not going to pay $2.01 or anything higher. I will go as high as $2. That's it. And wouldn't you know, Mr. Kiosk guy, he had an a, a copy of The Adventures of Superman, number 481 and 482, both, for a dollar a piece. So cover price, right? Okay, sold. And so it was, I brought home my new little uh, treasures. And guys, these were holes in my collection. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that a lot of comic book collectors, collectors, you understand, not just readers, specifically collectors. There's an OCD gene that a lot of comic book collectors have that I don't know that comic book readers can completely get on board with. You understand? There's something about having Adventures of Superman 480 and then 483 and going forward to the current day that getting Adventures of Superman 481 and 482, it just gives you the special sense of satisfaction. You know, it gives you the special sense of achievement, like you've you've accomplished something here. You know, and realistically, you haven't. You're just in the right place at the right time, and you bought a product, and then you put it into your long box with these other products, and you haven't really fucking achieved anything. But the OCD gene, it, it's like it didn't evolve to be rational. It, it evolved such that it can produce this kind of euphoric effect in your brain like there's a certain there are certain chemicals or certain endorphins that filling in these back issues in your collection releases into your bloodstream and you kind of just get that <sighs> sensation you know finally the stress is off my back you know and it would be fair to say that yes i am in fact a collector because i got that that very, mm, that that very kind of buzzy type of euphoria of putting these things inside of new new bags with new boards because you can't just use the shit that you get from the LCS 
or in this case, the comic book guy's kiosk in the mall. No, you have to put these issues inside of your bag using your boards and fuck everybody else's because that stuff's not good enough. It's all trash because this stuff is mine, you know, and just the kind of melodramatic kind of fanboy bullshit that is, uh, I think, possible only in your youth. You know, I honestly don't think very many people. I just don't think they're as snooty about it as they get older. You know, basically what they want are fairly cheap bags, fairly cheap boards, fairly cheap long boxes. Okay, good. That's good enough. You know, this idea of having the best bags and the best boards and it's better than everybody else's because fuck them, they're losers. You know, it's, it's something about that. It's like it just goes away after a certain point. I don't know why. And so anyway, there you have it. And all of this, now that I look at my little counter here, all of this is a really fucking long introduction into what I really want to talk about today, which, as I've said, is Adventures of Superman number 481. And like I've said, the at least the initial... I don't even know how to... I guess the initial allure of this issue is the fact that I had to come back to it as a back issue. But, you know, I've read it several times over the years, and I gotta tell you, you know, I mean, I, it's not like it's one of the great regrets of my life that I wasn't able to buy this thing brand new off the shelf. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, you know, it. this really would have been worth getting right off the shelf, because this is actually a pretty fun little issue here. But um, I'll come back to that when I come back to that. At least for right now, though, I'm talking about Adventures of Superman number 481. Cover date is August of 1991. On sale date is June 25th, 1991. Cover price, as I've gone to pains to say, is $1. Title is The Big Drain. Writer is The Mighty Jerry Ordway. Penciler is The Mighty Tom Grummet. Anchor is The Mighty Doug Hazelwood. Letterer is Albert Tobias de Guzman. Colorist is Glenn Whitmore. Editor is the mighty Mike Carlin. Story synopsis is as follows. Desperate to arrive at his job interview on time, Jimmy Olsen curses his dirty, rotten, no-good, shitty luck. He thinks to himself he might still be able to catch a bus, though, and so he storms off out of the subway. That may actually have worked out for the best, though, because a mysterious figure lurks all 90s style through the shadows of the Metropolis subway system. No, I, I'm, I'm serious. This guy is totally doing it 90s style because he's even wearing like this big slouch hat and a trench coat and all that stuff. Anyway, so the shadowy, mysterious figure forces the train to stop rips open a door, and muses to himself that it's time to eat and stuff. Across town, Clark and Lois finish up breakfast at Dooley's while Sam Foswell gets practically ignored by Dooley, the eponymous titular proprietor of the self-named restaurant called Dooley's, which is named after the owner himself as his name, is also Dooley, so that's what he calls his restaurant. Dooley runs out of coffee just as he goes to refill Foswell's mug, leaving Foswell to wonder if Dooley did that on purpose or if it's just an accident. And Foswell, if you're listening to this, 
Foswell, let me just say, there's no need to be paranoid. Everybody really does hate you. I mean, shit, you should hear what this one gang of first graders has in store for you. That's how much they hate you, and they don't even know you. Elsewhere, Jimmy storms off the bus. It's just been in a fender bender, and the bus driver's arguing with the motorist over who's at fault. Jimmy doesn't really care very much who gets blamed. He just wants to get to his interview on fucking time. Elsewhere, some dude called Ronald Troop arrives at Newstime and luckily manages to score some time with Colin Thornton, the publisher of Newstime, because whoever was scheduled for an interview at that moment apparently decided not to show up or something. Anyway, so Troop manages to impress Colin and Jimmy rushes in at the very moment, at that very moment, to see Colin grinning devilishly. <laughs> you see what I did there? As he offers Ron Troop the job for which Jimmy was supposed to interview. Deep underground. Maggie Sawyer and Dan Turpin, along with some other folks from the Metropolis Special Crimes Unit, investigate the carnage on the subway train. The shadowy, mysterious stranger who lurks strangely through the shadows, shrouded in mystery, killed every passenger on board the train. But the really weird thing is all that's left of the victims is withered skeletons. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the Daily Planet, Clark Kent leaves a message for Lana Lang about some bullshit or other, when Foswell swings by Clark's desk and assigns him the subway murder story. He also guarantees him the front page if he hands the story in on time. Clark heads out to get the story and wonders if the Daily Planet is becoming just another trashy, lurid tabloid under Sam Foswell because Clark's pretty sure that Perry White wouldn't have so much death, destruction, carnage, mayhem, and overtime parking on the front page, but trashy, lurid tabloids sure would. He switches to Superman, zooms through the skies, arrives at the subway, and is horrified by all the death, destruction, carnage, mayhem, and overtime parking before him. Superman's able to see an infrared outline of the shadowy stranger of mystery and zooms off after him in pursuit. Meanwhile, way over in Washington, D.C., Lana Lang and Pete Ross get together for movie night. Pete tries to hide the voice message Clark left earlier in the issue from Lana, but she tells him, hey, don't bother. She also says that she's going to talk to Clark when she's damn good and ready to talk to Clark, but that'll only be when she's damn good and ready. And excuse me while I get a sip off of my Dr. Pepper here because I've been running my mouth almost nonstop for half an hour now or something like that. So one moment, please. <coughs> mm, good stuff. All right. Back in Metropolis, Superman manages to catch up with the mystery stranger in the shadows, deep underground in the shadows. A fight breaks out, and Superman's shocked, literally, when the mysterious stranger in the shadows somehow leeches power from Superman. 
He then smashes Superman through a cement pillar, which is supporting the structure of the whole joint. He makes a run for it, while Superman jury-rigs a temporary support column made from steel girders. Figuring that out a hold until permanent repairs can be made, Superman regrets that the shadowy stranger, killer of mystery, escaped in all of this fuss and chaos. But, at least Clark Kent got the story on the front page, but that's no real comfort for him. The issue never comes right out and says so, but guys, I think it's pretty clear that Lois has uh, special plans to cheer Clark up set up for later that night. Back at his crappy dump of a lousy apartment, Jimmy puts the finishing touches on a lurid tabloid piece of trash that's all about the death, destruction, carnage, mayhem, and overtime parking on the subway train, and how he, Jimmy Olsen, narrowly avoided becoming one of the victims by a mere quirk of luck. This is because Jimmy's desperate for money and doesn't have any other immediate option for income at the moment. Otherwise, trust me, he would never be writing for a trashy tabloid. Finally, back at police headquarters, Maggie gets a call from a source who informs her that there was an attempted breakout at Belle Reve, but the escapee was killed in the process. The inmate's name was Rudy Jones, a.k.a. The Parasite. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, gotta tell you, you know, like, literally, right from the start, this cover is awesome. Now, it doesn't really have anything to do with the actual story. It looks like Superman is basically following a train that's full of that's basically traveling through the uh, underground subway system of metropolis at full speed and it's being dr driven fucking by skeletons and superman's all like huh what the fuck and that obviously never really happens in this issue but there is, I don't know, it's like there's a spiritual truth to it, if not a necessarily like a literal truth. And as I've said a thousand fucking times in the past, that's not good, it's not bad, it's simply what it is. So, anyway. Good cover, though, all around. And getting into the actual issue right here on page one, it basically starts up with Jimmy just missing the subway and... What you basically kind of have to figure is, you know, there are so many things that are happening in this story that if you're familiar with what happens later, like in issues still to come, a lot of this stuff actually really is working out for the best as far as Jimmy Olsen's concerned. It's just like he doesn't really know that. You know, so on the one hand, yeah, I mean, there are times when Jimmy is in great danger of going full Peter Parker. The only, the only luck, it, like if it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no luck at all, like that kind of thing. Jimmy is in danger at times in this issue of going full Peter Parker, but the difference is, at least in the 60s and stuff, when Peter would have, like, setbacks and whatnot, those are, like, legit setbacks, right? It's not that things are working out for the best. No, he really is getting fucked over. Whereas here, Jimmy superficially is getting fucked over, but 
thanks to missing the train, he's still alive. So again, it, it's I, I know that a lot of people want to call Jimmy at this, like I guess at this juncture in Superman continuity, they basically want to call him Peter Parker Jr. And like on the one hand, I totally get that, but it, it's just not true, guys. And that's the point. So what I will say though is this is the first time I can really remember taking notice of Tom Grummet as an artist. You know, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think this was his actual first issue on Adventures of Superman. It may have been his first full issue, now that I think about it, but I don't think this is, I, I don't think this was his first time on any Superman comic. Like I say, it's just like the first full issue is all. This is the first full issue. And I got to tell you, it, the part of me, like as a kid, the part of me that was in love with John Byrne's art, that was in love with Carrie Gamble's art, that part of me. Yeah, I was on board with Tom Grummet pretty much right away. And I mean this in a positive way. The work that we see from Tom Grummet here, it's good, it's effective, it's competent, it's... I think it's it's definitely professional-grade stuff, no question about it. But it's still not as good as Grummet would become, you know? He starts off great, don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying, like, his best work is still ahead of him. Anyway... Really, really well done first page here, you know, just because of the sheer amount of detail that's on this page. I mean, look, guys, I don't have the same eye for art that like other people do, but I can see the motion lines. I can see all the detailing in the ceiling. I can see, um, you know, the individual rivets on this uh, on this uh, vertical girder that's serving as a support column in the subway. I can see the tiled walls, this, the uh, this, the stairs that are leading back up. Uh, back up to the surface, uh, the turnstile that Jimmy's stopping just short of. I mean, there's a fuck ton of detail that's on this page. And so a lot of times artists might try, I don't know, skimping on detail here, but there's a shitload of detail uh, that, that Grummet's throwing in, and I just really appreciate it. So anyway, moving right along... Uh, and kind of, if anything, actually skipping ahead a little bit to page three. I didn't really know a whole lot about the parasite from the uh, pre-crisis days. You know, I mean, I didn't really have much of a sense of the pre-crisis apart from like the, like the occasional like Silver Age stories that would get reprinted sometimes or just, you know, here and there. I didn't really know a whole lot about the parasite and what his shtick was. So to me, like the idea of a character that I guess in a sense is kind of like Rogue from the X-Men, you know, that basically you touch this person and it's your ass. And I just kind of liked this idea, you know, because it's a cool way to challenge Superman because how does Superman fight somebody like this? Because to fight him at all is to lose, right? So how how do you fight him, right? And so I thought that was an incredibly original idea for a Superman villain. And, you know, it, it, I guess on the one hand, you know, it's sort of embarrassing that I didn't know that this wasn't a brand new character, that he'd existed in the pre-crisis as well. 
You know, that on the one hand, yeah, that's kind of embarrassing. But on the other hand, you know, fuck it. I was only a kid. I mean, I didn't know any better. It's like 11 or something like that. You know, show me a show me a, an 11 year old who knows everything. And I'll show you a total brat because there isn't any such person, you know, anyway. Overall, um, this is just a cool character is, is the point. And I liked the parasite then and I like him now. That's that's what I'm driving at here. So anyway, moving right along, getting into page four, I said that Tom Grummet would get better as time goes on, and I stand by that. And page four is actually a pretty good indication of what I'm talking about here. In the in issues to come, I think Tom Grummet is gonna have a really cool take. Uh, well, not a really cool, but a really good take on Lois Lane. You know, she's going to be, you know, cute and spunky and, and she's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, she's just going to look good in the Tom Grummet style. That's in the future though. Here she looks kind of manly. I mean, I look at page four, especially that final panel at the bottom of page four, and she hardly looks feminine at all. She looks like a guy wearing a wig. And, I don't know, um, whatever. So, <sighs> moving right along, we get it, getting into page five. This is actually one of those things about th this era of Superman comics that I kind of like, is that goings-on with Foswell and, you know, I guess the just really shit self-esteem the guy has is going somewhere, you know? This isn't just arbitrary drama. In a year's time, or a year-ish, this is getting paid off. You know, something is going to happen with Sam Foswell. You know, so keep an eye out for that. But it starts getting set up here. And this is one of the things that I just like about this era of Superman, is that, you know, a st you know one story will uh, reach its, its zenith. But at the same time, that story is reaching its zenith. Some other story is getting developed. And while one story is getting developed and another story is reaching its zenith, another story is being introduced, you know? And that's just a really fucking cool way to do comics, you know? And I'm of the opinion that if the these same exact Superman comics were coming out today, the world that we live in now, I'm of the opinion that these comics would be... You couldn't keep them on the shelf, you know? Like this type of serialized storytelling that people demand now of TV shows, Th these comics, like this whole Burn Age era, that's exactly what these comics are. I mean, they're basically a Netflix show in a sense, you know, and it's just, it's just done really fucking well. And I, I just, I just dig it is the point. So anyway, getting into page six. Yes, this is, in fact, page six. At the very top, you know, there's this panel where we see Jimmy. He's hopping off of a bus, and we see the bus driver arguing with uh, the motorist who just basically, well, front-ended the bus, I suppose. And one of the hardest, again, I am not an artist, but one of the hardest things to draw for an artist is damaged things, you know? Because something happens that whenever you draw something that's broken, 
it doesn't look like that's something that's broken. It looks like an I don't even know what the fuck I'm looking at half the time, you know? And I like the fact that Grummet kind of sidesteps that here. I mean, you can kind of infer that there's significant damage to the bus, but you don't really see what the damage is. I mean, you can see that the front end of the car has a few extra lines and shit on it, and it looks like the, the hood is kind of folded up a bit, but it's still recognizably a car, but basically most of the damage is being hidden uh, by smoke that's pouring out either from underneath the bus or underneath the car. And it's basically, you get the idea that, you know, shit has gone down here on the one hand, but on the other hand, Grummet isn't letting himself get lost in the weeds over putting in every single last piece of broken glass and all that other stuff. You know, he basically gives you the flavor of what the damage is, but he keeps the art vague enough that you can fill in this really exquisite damage that's done to the the bus or to the car. You can fill all that uh, damage in just kind of mentally with your own damage, you know, and it's, and the damage is going to be as bad as you want it to be, or as good as you want, or fucking whatever. It's going to look however you want, because the art, it's specific enough to give you an, an idea of what's going on and gives you the flavor, but it's still vague enough that you can imagine what it looks like for yourself. And I kind of like that, you know, it's not just every artist who can do that. And that, that works for me. So Elsewhere, getting into uh, the bottom of page six, you, this is Ron Troop, and I'm just gonna say I don't like Ron Troop. I have never, I have never liked Ron Troop. I don't get Ron Troop. I think he's an annoying fucking twerp, and that's, I guess, about as much as maybe I need to say about Ron Troop. I just think the guy's just a fuck weasel. But whatever. Anyway, so moving into. Uh, other things at the bottom of uh, page eight, we see Jimmy basically rush in for his me uh, his interview with uh, uh, News Time, for which he's very late because of all the crazy bullshit that's been happening to him this morning. And he's he arrives just in time to see somebody else get the job for which he wanted to interview. <clears throat> and I got to tell you, you know, this is one of those things that like it pretty much rolled off my back. <clears throat> I'm going to get another drink off of my Dr. Pepper here, guys. Just one sec. My throat is just getting fucking dry. All right. So this is one of those things that just sort of rolled off my back when I was a kid because I'd never interviewed for a job before. I'd never really had a job before. And I didn't really understand like what it meant you know like what it was to go out there and compete for a job you know and that sometimes in life you just get lucky you know sometimes in life timing really is everything you were in the right <clears throat> you showed up in the right place at the right time and so you were able to you know catch an opportunity that came your way you know that if you had arrived even 10 seconds later or 10 seconds sooner might not have been there, you know? And I understand that very well now as an adult, but it's like as a kid, I didn't really get it. And this is one of those things that when people say like, you know, writing for adults, you know, nine times out of 10, what people mean by that is basically uh, boobs and asses. 
And, you know, I don't know what world everybody else is living in, but in my adult world, boobs and asses really don't figure into things very often. You know, but uh, showing up late for uh, job appointments, you know, job interviews and stuff like that, or um, let me think, uh, riding on a bus that gets in a fucking car crash, or, or or just you know fucking what whatever it is that happens to people in life, you know, yeah, stuff like that. You know, it's not again, it's not like it's part of my everyday existence either. But I, I don't know. I just this seems to me very adult, but not in like uh, like a TNA kind of way, you know, like Showtime after dark kind of way, you know, and this to me is what adult writing should be. You know, it's still accessible to kids. You're not leaving anybody out, but adults who read this, this is going to hit home with them, you know? So anyway, actually, you know what? And I was just, you know, looking at Jimmy at the bottom of uh, page eight, that very last panel, he looks very Kurt Swan ish to me there. You know, the rest of the time he looks like Tom Grummet's Jimmy, but Specifically at the bottom of page eight, he looks kind of Kurt Swanish. Huh. Well, anyway. <clears throat> so, moving right along, on page ten, we basically get our first real glory shot of Tom Grummet's uh, version of Superman. And I, I really like this. I mean, like, this is a great way for Grummet to introduce his take on Superman to the reader. You know, we see him swooping out of the Daily Planet building. You can see the Daily Planet globe in the background there. And there's a passing news helicopter, you know, in the background behind that. And it just looks really neat, you know. And again, kind of Kurt Swanish now that I look at it, you know. This is, I don't know. I mean, I, not so much like the line style, but I could see Kurt Swan drawing Superman in this type of pose, you know, he probably has, you know, I don't know. That's, that's very interesting. That only just occurred to me. Huh. Well, anyway, so, um, then from there we, we get, uh, just, this is on uh, page 11. We get a couple of not really glory shots, but we get a couple of just kind of neat glimpses of Superman swooping around and being Superman. And I sometimes think that comic book creators, it's like they underestimate how how much Superman fans love seeing stuff like that. How much we love seeing Clark Kent do a shirt rip or Superman fire up his heat vision or Superman lift something like really fucking heavy or Superman swoop through the skies or, or just, you know, whatever, you know. I sometimes think comic creators, it's like they don't fully understand how how much we love that. You know, and I can't help thinking that, you know, somebody needs to uh, just let them know or so. I don't know. But the point is, the part of me that loves seeing Superman just be Superman, do Superman stuff, just eats this up with a spoon. I dig it. So, anyway, uh, from there, basically, Superman decides it's time to head out and find myself a killer. So, that's that. Elsewhere, though, we get to this bit with uh, Pete Ross and Lana Lang in Washington, D.C. And guys, I'm just going to come right out and say it. I've always kind of liked this version of Pete ending up with this version of Lana. You know, because Pete 
always had a thing for Lana. And Lana, I always got the idea that had Clark not been around, you know, had Clark never been in the picture, Lana probably would have ended up with Pete. She would have married him. She would have lived the rest of her life with him and probably would have been very happy with him. You know, it's just Pete. I guess it was just his bad luck that he met Lana when he was a kid, because if they didn't have that history together, if they didn't have that baggage in Smallville, I don't know. Who's to say that things might have turned out differently, maybe turned out better, you know? And as it stands, you know, I never really got the idea that Pete and Lana were necessarily head over heels in love with each other. I got the idea that, you know, yeah, they love each other and they they enjoy each other, but the Pete doesn't love Lana as much as Lana used to love Clark, you know? And I don't know. I mean, it's like I guess they love they both love each other at this point like I don't know, like 70-80% and that's about as much as maybe they can muster for one another. But it's enough, you know? And I couldn't really ever picture Pete and Lana like having a knockdown, drag out argument over something, you know? Because fundamentally, none of them, like neither of them are really that invested in anything, you know? And I just kind of like that, you know? I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, there are these amazing, uh, epic love, this is some kind of epic, amazing love story or something like that. No. Again, this is just more of like an adult type of relationship because, you know, thank God I'm not in a relationship like this, but I've seen people who live very happy lives this way, you know, that they're married to somebody that they love 75, 85%, you know, Lana loved Clark 100%. She loves Pete 75, 85% and through there, you know, and I get the idea that at this point, Pete pretty much reciprocates it, you know, about anywhere between 75 to 85%, you know? And, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to shit on anybody's dreams or for that matter, shit on anybody's life, but I mean, there are people out there that's just the hand that fate dealt them, you know? The person that they're with, yeah, they love them, but they don't love them, you know? That 100% love. You know, I mean, you don't necessarily bring that to every single relationship, you know? And so if you do love somebody 100%, fucking marry that person, you know? Because, dude, you won the lottery. But, I mean, a lot of people out there are in marriages of 75, 85%, you know? And they make that work. They live their very happy lives. They have children and things are great, you know? And to me, this is just, again not in a boobs and ass kind of a situation, but again, this is just like adult writing, okay? I've seen this so fucking many times in my adult life where, you know, you have these couples, again, it's not that they don't love each other. They do. They just don't have that 100% love, you know? Uh, Clark loves Lois 100%. Lois loves Clark 100%. But guys, we, we have all met people that only love their husbands, 75%, or only love their wives, 85%. I mean, you know, people like that, they're out there, 
you know they have that kind of a marriage and you know on the one hand I, it's kind of hard for me to say that's a completely affirmative good thing because i do love stacy 100 percent you know so it's kind of hard for me to to say on the one hand you know this is an affirmative good to love somebody only 85 percent but on the other hand i mean that's a that's the way a lot of people live this is a very adult thing i find you know so I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe I'm totally crazy on this. I don't know. I mean, if you think I'm, if you think I'm insane, fuck it. Uh, send me an email. Uh, trendusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Just send me an email. Let me know. And also give me some context on this because guys, I usually forget about shit the instant I say it. So just let me know what I was talking about. And then you can say, and Magnus, you're full of shit because blah, blah, blah. You know. Just state your case, whatever it is. So, anyway. Moving right along. Uh, basically, we come across... Well, fuck it, I can just call him the Parasite now. We come across uh, the Parasite right as Superman catches up with him, and dude, the fight's on. Uh, they take turns uh, beating the shit out of each other a little bit, but, I mean, honestly, this isn't exactly a fight where Superman is coming out obviously on top. I mean, it'd be fair to say he's pretty well getting his ass kicked because in his defense, it's not like Superman ever had any kind of experience fighting somebody who basically wins by physical contact. So not only can this guy kick your ass just physically, he wins just by literally touching you, physically touching you, you know? And that's not exactly an easy enemy to overcome, now is it? So... I don't know. Superman, for being caught completely off guard by all of this, I still think he does a pretty admirable job, but it does need to be said that, yeah, he pretty much does get his ass kicked pretty handily here. But I do kind of like, and this is this actually takes us over to page 21, I do kind of like this, uh, this bit where Superman, it's like he just kind of improvises a way to to prop up uh, the support column that he's working with. He basically grabs a bunch of Actually, I can't tell if this is one girder that he's folded up a bunch of times. Well, whatever. I choose to view this as a couple of girders that he just picks up off the ground. And he basically uh, welds them in place with his heat vision. And basically figures, well, that'll hold until somebody can make some permanent repairs. But this is a good little temporary fix. And I just kind of like the idea that, you know, he's... He's capable of thinking, you know, creatively like that, you know, because it is kind of a weird situation to find yourself in where, you know, the... This place is collapsing, and it's going to fall apart unless you figure something out, you know, so I guess it's lucky there were some girders nearby. So anyway, he melts those into place, and, you know, that's pretty much it. He has to let the parasite escape because of that, and so, I don't know, it's it's just a neat little moment, and it... it it's basically it's a good little reminder that Superman isn't all brain. He's not all muscle. You know, he can think. You know, he's a creative thinker. He's an investigative reporter. I mean, that's what he does for money. Okay, that's how he makes a living. And I just dig that, you know. I, I dig when Superman is shown to be smart. You know, that works. So anyway. Overall, this is just a fun, you know just really enjoyable issue I love not just enjoy I love Tom Grummet's art 
You know, he's, for my money, it, it's kind of sad that he doesn't really, I don't know that he gets the full props that he deserves for being, I think, one of the really great Superman artists of the 90s, you know, because when you think about it, I mean, his competition is Stuart Eminent. It's Dan Jurgens. It's Jerry Ordway. It's, uh, I mean, just shit, there are tons of them, you know? That's who Tom Grummet has to compete with, you know? And shit, Bob McLeod, there's another one, who doesn't get all the props he deserves. I mean, my point is that Adventures of Superman, this issue, I just fucking, I, I love this art. And one of the things I've noticed is that Adventures of Superman, it seemed to be that, not always, but it's like that was where the new badass Superman artist of tomorrow would start getting his feet wet, you know? Started with Jerry Ordway, and then, uh, and then it worked on and on and on. And when you start looking back at it, I mean, it really is true. Look at it. Tom Grummet at one point, Dan Jurgens at one point, uh, Stuart Eminem at one point. I mean, the only one, or, or one, I mean, obviously one kind of obvious exception is Barry Kitson. He didn't really stick around all that much, which is unfortunate. But, I mean, you know, there was a point when Adventures of Superman, that was almost like the premier Superman title for a a noteworthy, shall we say, a noteworthy Superman artist to to come along and, and make a splash. So, anyway. All around, I really enjoy this particular issue, and I'd actually planned originally to talk about the next issue, which is to say Adventures of Superman number 482, but I guess I'm just going to have to save that for another time. But this episode is kind of... It's going a little bit long as it is, but... Anyway, point is, I love this issue, and guys... There's no way that this issue can cost you very much in the back issue market. I highly recommend going out and picking it up. I mean, number one, you should have a complete run of Burn Age Superman comics anyway. But number two, I mean, this is just such a fun issue. I just, I just dig it. I mean, so much cool stuff was happening in Superman titles at this time. And I don't know, this is, it's a brick in the wall, but it's, I really enjoy it. So... Anyway, all in all, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world. Comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. 
My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, three. Thirty years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step, every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 
Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.